0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto eight years ago, and as a senior editor of Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the August 8th, 2023 episode of Unchained. Arbitrum's leading layer-2 scaling solutions can provide you with lightning-fast transactions at a fraction of the cost, all while ensuring security rooted on Ethereum. Arbitrum's newest edition, Orbit, enables you to build your own tailor made Layer 3. Visit Arbitrum.io today. At Token 2049 Singapore on September 13th to 14th, Balaji Srinivasan, Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss, Arthur Hayes, and 200 others will hit the stage, joining over 10,000 attendees. Visit Token2049.com for 65% off regular ticket prices with the code UNCHAINED. Link in the description. Buy, trade, and spend crypto on the Crypto.com app. New users can enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in the first seven days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Today's guest is Alex Blania, co-founder of WorldCoin. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for having me. WorldCoin developed with the goal of distributing universal basic income to all 8 billion people on the planet. And in order to do that, it needed to solve the problem of personhood, which is a way of detecting whether some or the entity, I guess, that is being transacted with is a person versus an AI or some other kind of bot. And I wondered how it was that this was decided that this goal of universal basic income should be a goal for humanity?
1: Right. So actually universal basic income was, uh, I think it was a motivation for Sam personally, right? Because like Sam Sam Altman, Sam Altman, right? Sam Altman, because he has been interested in universal basic income since many, many years. And also he believes that, AI is going to put us in a position where we can actually do these things at a meaningful scale, right? So, like he actually believes that something will change about the world uh, compared to now, meaning AI will become increasingly powerful, and you will have a couple of entities that produce a lot of value that we can distribute. But that was not the; uh, it was one of the potential outcomes of RockCoin. It was not one of kind of the main founding purpose of RockCoin. The main founding purpose of RockCoin was creating. A financial network uh, that is truly inclusive based on proof of personhood uh, with the goal of kind of onboarding actually billions of people uh, with the hope that it will accelerate many of the things that crypto uh, as an industry and as a space has tried to do in kind of a a shortened timeframe because we think it's important for the world.
0: So since your launch, which was very recently, I'm sure you have been feeling that you've been in the hot seat because you have been. So we're going to go through some of the different criticisms that I've seen that have popped up. And one of them is pretty recent. Shortly before we started recording, Oriel Ohayan of Zengo published a video showing that his colleague was able to make a WorldCoin transaction from Oriel's account simply by using Oriel's PIN code. So assuming that Ariel and his colleague don't have the same exact iris, why was that transaction not rejected?
1: Because the protocol is designed to not reject that transaction so essentially um, kind of the, the, the protocol has a roadmap as any protocol uh, ever ever does right um, and one of the things that will have to be implemented for the protocol is reauthentication so essentially making sure that you as a user, you're still the same holder of the same world ID as you go forward. And that will work with um, kind of local on your phone stored uh, face data. So it's like face ID essentially. But the really valuable thing is not that. The really valuable thing is that we can distribute uh, proof of unique humanness uh, kind of credentials to everyone. Uh, And it will be very, very valuable to people. So I don't think they will actually start trading that. That's That's a Concern that it is there right now, and I understand it, but it is—that's how the system is designed, and we are wait, very public wait, about that. I, like,
0: I'm—I'm I, I'm not following. So yes, I, I thought the whole premise was to prove that you are this unique individual, but you guys launch when the technology doesn't require that—that that you can just bypass that with a pin code. Is that? It sounds like that's what you're saying. <laughs>
1: Well, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, so, what I'm saying is, you as a user, um, you you get a credential when you verify with an orb about your proof of personhood, and you can use that online. You can verify in different services with zero knowledge proofs that uh, that you actually are verified with your world ID. But yes, right but now you can But it's not used in print.
0: Worldcoin. Like Worldcoin doesn't use it. You're saying that you can use that online, but but you don't use it in the No, World we coin? also
1: use that. So like when you when you claim your roll coin tokens, you also use a roll ID, of course. So like whenever you do that, you use a roll ID.
0: But to to transact in the tokens, you don't use that.
1: No, you don't need to use it that there. That's right. I know,
0: but why wouldn't you? Because then what if somebody then just steals your pin code and then they take all your money?
1: So these are two very different things, right? Like you actually have um let's say you use the World app, which is non-custodial wallet. You ha- actually have two things. You have your Normal Ethereum wallet, and then you have your World ID credentials, which are two different things. So, uh, actually, World ID is not connected to your financial transaction data or anything like that for many reasons, and most of them are privacy related. So, these are two different problems essentially, right? So, you can receive a WorldCoin, these are ERC20 tokens, they will arrive in your wallet, and it's a normal Ethereum wallet. Uh, and then you have also your World ID that you can use to verify online.
0: So in the future, so when people receive their WorldCoin, it will be based on that proof of personhood, and that is what that's used for. But transactions with an Ethereum wallet, although in this case it is the WorldCoin wallet, but still any wallet, they're, they're separate from the proof of correct. personhood. They're not meant to be linked. And, and they'll never be linked? Is that the case? That's
1: correct. Yeah, that, that's the case. So, so essentially, what do you have? Like, what world ID is? It is essentially like a separate key, a public-private key pair that you then use to issue zero-knowledge proofs to different services. Uh, so you remain anonymous to those services. And one good example is actually, uh, let's say Twitter. Uh, so Elon was very public about the fact that uh, bots will flood Twitter. X. And the only way to solve that is that you actually every user has to pay a monthly amount. He might have different incentives to say that because he just wants to uh, increase his revenue, uh, of course. but however, this will be a real problem, and it will, will be a real problem not only for X or for Twitter but also for uh, Meta and many other services and so then you can use your world ID to prove uh, that you an actual like you, you have your world id that basically gives rate limiting to the whole system and solves that problem.
0: Okay. So it truly is, I guess, designed for that universal basic income. It's like you can receive and people will know that you are a human on the receiving end, but all the other stuff is okay. Okay. So I think this is like probably a misconception based on uh, (laughs) what it seems like uh, the system should be. One other thing that I was curious about is I couldn't find any evidence that iPhones use iris scanners. Um, Apparently some Samsung phones do, but I didn't see anywhere saying that iPhones use that. Um, Apple's support page just says, quote, Face ID recognizes if your eyes are open and your attention Mm -hmm. is directed toward the device. So does WorldCoin's iris scanning verification, does that work on an iPhone?
1: No, so essentially... Um, That's the whole point. That's why we had to build hardware Um, from the ground up. That's why we had to build the Orb. Is When you use your iPhone, when you use Face ID, what Face ID does, it just recognizes that you're the same person again using the phone. So you're still Laura, and you want to use your phone right now. And there's some some embedding stored on the phone. Uh, Face ID takes a scan of your face, says, okay, this is also Laura. Those two things matches, and then you can use your iPhone. And that's other than fraud, it's very easy to do because it's very hard for me to look exactly like you. However, for (laughs) proof of personhood, uh, however, for proof of personhood or uh, anyone that actually wants to solve that problem, uh, what you have to do is you have to compare one user against everyone else. So it's not Laura against Laura, but it's Laura against a billion other users, let's say. And you need much, much more information. Uh, about that comparison, otherwise the error rate, so like how many mistakes you make in that comparison, will be so big that the whole system collapses, and that is actually the hardest problem to solve, and that's that that's why the orb. So you essentially you go to an orb, you verify, it takes a picture of your face and also of your eye, and takes essentially all the kind of all the information that is in there, calculates a unique uh, embedding and hash, and compares that against everyone else, and if that is the case. On your phone, you receive a world ID. You will be able to recover a new world ID if you lose access to that phone. And you can then use that world ID to verify yourself online. However, when you use then your phone and you use world ID on your phone, we don't need the Iris anymore. You, you only need the Iris once to issue that original pair of world ID. So that's checks uniqueness. And afterwards, the only thing that you have to check is that still the same user is holding the account, which is what the first question was referred to which right now is not the case.
0: Okay, so let me let me try to restate all that to make sure that I understood. So you Great. do the scan and that verifies that it's unique in the database, it then creates I guess it's a zero knowledge proof. Correct? Okay and so the zero knowledge proof is then what is used later on to verify it's not the actual iris. However, one thing that's curious to me is so then when i so so then just restate the part about how your phone um verifies that that, that you cuz i guess what the the you know as i'm sure you're aware there was this black market that popped up where people were selling worldcoin credentials. Yep. So i think that's yes. the missing step it's like you know People expect that when they're using their device, that the device is checking that their iris, or or whatever the hash of it, matches the one in the database. Or well, yeah. <laughs> I think it's well, maybe so, not it.
1: A- yeah. So, so two things. Um, so quickly on that on a black market, I think it was like this was just clearly a very juicy headline to use uh, because I think the headline was like black uh, black market for biometric data or something. That is actually not what is happening here. As like you're not. So first stating what exactly happened is you had um, users in countries where WorldCoin is not active and so they cannot participate, which was mostly China. And they essentially bought login credentials from other markets where WorldCoin is active, which was Portugal, uh, Nairobi, in Kenya, uh, India. And that, by the way, most of that actually happened before the token was live because the users, uh, they, they didn't have a clear value that could attach to their WorldCoin. However, what that does is you essentially you sell your login, so you sell, your, let's say, your email address and your your password. However, what you as a user will be able to do is you will be, just be able to recover your WorldCoin by showing up, uh, role ID by showing back up to an orb again. And then what that means is that the, let's say the person in China that acquired the login credentials, they just acquired something that is completely useless because uh, the login doesn't work anymore. Right. So that's the that's actually what happened. And yes, you're right in that sense that um, kind of in the identity space, people called it continuity. So I own a world ID and without going to an orb again, I can still show that I still use the same, same world ID uh, similar to face ID, which is what you just referred to with iris scanning or something like that. However, for that, you will not... Need so this is this is not implemented right now. It's on the roadmap. It's going to be probably there in in, in in three to six months. You don't need iris verification for that step anymore. But what happens is the orb takes also a picture of your face, signs that, and sends that locally to your phone. So you actually have self custody of that. And then with your local phone camera, you you prove that you are still the same person. So very similar face ID. But that that's again the one-to-one comparison problem, which is pretty easy to solve. Um so, sorry, this is like pretty technical. Uh but yeah, kind of wow. ma- so, make makes sense.
0: But so basically, um there's more than one type of verification. One more than correct. Sorry, there's more than one biometric type of verification. One is the iris and the other's your face. And you do the face because that's how the iPhone works.
1: We will do that. So that's not that's not implemented right, oh, right now. And that's you actually will. the Right, and that's the much easier problem. So that um, what people call that is kind of the uniqueness check and then re-authentication. And so your face ID is doing re-authentication and that's also going to come for WorldCoin at some point. And that's what you just referred to, yes.
0: Will that be used to transact or no?
1: Not is it still
0: transact. only to receive? Oh, okay.
1: Yes, yes. So to receive a WorldCoin, but then also to use your role ID online. Um, so for example, if you want to verify to Twitter you will then re-authenticate with your face at some point.
0: Got it. So, But something that's confusing to me is that um, MIT Technology Review did a critical piece on what WorldCoin was up to about a year ago. And one of the things they noted was that in some of the fine print, you were saying that you were going to collect information like high-res images of users' body, face, and eyes, including users irises and that it would also you would also conduct quote contactless doppler radar detection of your heartbeat breathing and other vital signs and then it later the the link uh, where you know this this was was i think it was changed cuz i couldn't find that text on the new version i found it on on the older version so right. i thought that Like basically that you weren't taking the information, but now you're saying that you are actually taking that information.
1: Well, I mean, this is, to be very honest, what happened here, it was an over-enthusiastic lawyer that just like added this, (laughs) the section, the AGBs. um, And so we removed it because it doesn't have to be there. So right now, if you verify before coin, the default is that we do not store any data. You can essentially say you opt in and you help us with training the models. But you don't have to. And actually, uh, the minority of of, of users actually do that. So that's also something that was not there a year ago, to be clear, because like a year ago, we were in early beta. So there was actually more data transferred back then uh, because the the features were just not live. But as of today, there is no data collected, which was always the statement. Always the statement was like post launch, you don't have, like it's going to be privacy preserving. You don't have to uh, transmit any
0: data. Okay. However, it is you are still taking people's face, so that later on that can be used via the phone. So that is one well, piece that not, you are still no.
1: We are we are, we. So for the, first of all, this is not implemented right now, right? Again, so this is right. going to be a future. <laughs> uh, this is going to be a future feature, and we will not take the data, but rather the orb is going to send it locally to your phone, and it's going to be in self custody with your phone, and then you can do that to prove some knowledge proofs again. So it's like. This is actually like really cool tech, and it's—I know it's confusing because most people never interact with these things. But it actually is kind of very cool privacy-preserving identity services uh, that that are going to be built here. So is—is that clear? Like, do you you understand what I meant with we actually do not receive or have to receive that face data?
0: It's because you're taking it with the orb, but then you just generate the hash and you immediately delete the data or something like like that. Is that? correct?
1: No, the face embedding, so that's also correct, but that's for the uniqueness check. But for the face comparison piece, uh, the embedding is going to be created and then going to be sent to the user's phone. And then user, user, you hold it on your phone in self-custody. So there's no centralized database of that data, essentially.
0: Right, right. Which is, I guess, how our phones work. Correct. Right, like Apple doesn't have, yeah. (laughs) Correct,
1: yes, correct. That's exactly how face ID works, yes.
0: That would be crazy if Apple had all these um, facial scans, but anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, correct. So it's it, it really is like Face ID.
0: Okay. And then I wanted to go back to the black market. You said that you had cut that off. So how did you do that so people can't just sell the credentials?
1: I mean, they still can. It's just that they don't do that anymore that much because now the token is live. And so the incentive is is, is low, right? Because it's it's much more profitable to just be a Vulkan user and actually receive your airdrop than to sell that to someone who doesn't have access to your account. So that's, I think, that's, that's the major reason why it happens way less. There's, of course, like a lot of security measures that are alive now that make it harder. But then also, we are very clear in our white paper that right now, that kind of credential trading, it can happen. There's nothing that fundamentally prevents that from happening. The only thing that fundamentally would prevent that is what we just talked about, is that Face ID-like fe- feature. However, um the Protocol is already very useful the way it is, so it's like, yes, that's that's a limitation, and we are very clear about those limitations. There's like even a whole section of the white paper that just talks about limitations, and there's 10 of them that we are aware of. Um, and that's one of them,
0: okay. I mean, I guess the thing is that it's not really solved if someone is because the countries that are banned from this are countries where either speculation is a really um, popular activity or that are ones that are kind of wealthy. So like the United States and China, uh, China is, a, I, I think, even more speculative than the U.S. The U.S. is a wealthy country. So I think that if anybody's willing to pay enough for the credentials, then they can just compete with whatever the market price is, right? So.
1: Right. So, So two things. One is I did not say that that's the fundamental thing, preventing it. I just said that's why it's happening way less. The fundamental thing that is preventing it is two things. It is uh, recovery. So essentially, you as a user, you sell your credentials to someone in China, let's say like for $100 because it's more than you would receive through Volcoin, let's say. Then you as a, a person in Portugal or in Spain where there's actually orbs, you can sell that to the person in china for $100 you receive $100 and then you can just go back to an orb and recover your account and that person in china will hold something that is worthless so essentially you as like you, you as like you as a user you can actually fraud the fraudster uh so you have this like th- th- that's something that is pretty common in in kind of incentive design so i think that's 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 the number one feature and then the second thing is uh the face id because uh, then that person in China would also need that face embedding locally stored on their phone, which they will not have. So there's always there and there will always be ways to fraud the system if you pay enough money for that. Uh, It's just going to be increasingly hard. Every identity system has that. It's like you can even fraud the European identity system or the US government identity system. You can purchase social security numbers if you pay a couple thousand dollars. So the only thing is recovery needs to work, re needs to work. And that's it will take time. It will not be perfect, definitely not within the next 12 months. But the most important problem is solved. And the most important problem is uniqueness. And that's something where so many others have failed before.
0: Okay. So now let's actually talk a little bit more about that MIT Technology Review article, because something that you know, did seem a little bit alarming is I'm sure you're well aware. It started with a description of one of these days where, um, you know, the world coin orb was in this one village and it was getting people's irises. And the person that they interviewed had heard about it just as a way to get free money, essentially didn't really seem to know anything else about it. Um, and I wondered, you know, why it was that WorldCoin has focused so much on distributing and scanning irises in poor countries. I mean, you know, as we saw in the article, like sometimes many of these people didn't even have email addresses. So they're not like, you know, crypto natives that, you know, are already familiar with this kind of thing.
1: Right. So that definitely was a very, like, I think it was very unbalanced reporting in that sense that actually, the, the whole, like WorldCoin actually started in Berlin. Like all the initial signups happened in literally Berlin, me walking with an orb and the team walking with orbs through Berlin. So this is actually how it started. And afterwards came Sweden and Norway. And uh, all of this was during COVID, by the way. So like traveling was like super, super hard. However, it's called Rollcoin, So we wanted to make sure it actually works everywhere. So we also uh, signed up or kind of actually test the technology in places like Nairobi, Indonesia, uh, and, and kind of poorer countries, because that's the whole, I think it's a big piece of crypto, right? The, the, the whole idea of crypto was to build a decentralized financial system that works for everyone and it should work in the United States and it should work in other places in the world too. So that's, that's, that's the one piece. Of course, back then the company and the project was like super, super early and there's many things that should not have happened, but to the other point that you just raised which is like okay these people are not crypto native and whatever they might might not understand like everything fully i don't think that's a bad thing and i think that's that's like how crypto actually will become mainstream right it's that i think is actually a good thing it's not a bad thing so it's like of course operators and everyone on the field is now trained to explain things much much better and there's like a lot of quality controls and and things like that in place that have not been in place a year ago, but even if you do everything perfect, the average person will not understand how ethereum works and how like crypto works in detail or uh, like what' your knowledge proofs are or what decentralized computing is all of those things are things that by itself are very niche, and so yeah, that's a short comment on that
0: well, I mean. It definitely seems, though, um, that a big percentage of the people in those countries, the more developing ones, they didn't really understand what they were doing when they were getting their irises scanned. And even though, you know, we we can have this high-level discussion around, like, you guys aren't keeping the data, it's using this hash, blah, blah, blah. Like, I mean, there's even risks around the zero-knowledge proof hashes. Like, you know, apparently quantum computing is a risk at some point in the future to that so, like, do you feel that people really understood what what the trade-offs were or or kind of what risk they were taking when they were getting their irises scanned?
1: So so first of all, I literally did quantum computing before Rollcoin. And it's again, it's one of those things that is like very easy to say and like sounds very futuristic, but we are very far from quantum computing being a challenge to zero knowledge proofs. And if they actually are, there's ways to react to that. So this is not like an actual concern right now. Second, again, there's many things back then that probably work did not work the the way I would want them to work, or like the project would want them to work. It was a very early state of the project, and it was during COVID, it was really hard to travel even. So that's for sure. I definitely wanna wanna say that. I'm definitely sure if you would ask people that use Or signed up for Rollcoin back then, they could not explain you fully what Rollcoin is. And I think that's fine. That's not going to change. Like, if you actually want to aim for a billion users, this is not going to change. And I think the same is true for actually, there's like a very, and people will hate me for this comment, uh, but I think it's a very valid one is the fact that, for example, transactions on Ethereum are fully transparent. Like, I fly around the world, I talk to many, many people. Many people are first time crypto users. Most first time crypto users that actually use a wallet and and kind of get Ethereum or or even Bitcoin and want to make transactions, they just do not understand that and do not understand the trade off they do with that, which is like very major, right? That's not privacy preserving. So the whole space has a lot of problems like that still. So I think it's unfair if you hold me accountable to the fact that like people do not understand how crypto works. Because I think that's the case for all of us. It's, it's the case for a large piece of the of the space.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think what you're referring to is all the people who used Silk Road early on and then later realized that actually maybe um, their sort of like illicit purchases could be traced back to them.
1: No, no, I, I, I don't mean that. I literally, I literally mean you go to Argentina, to Buenos Aires, you talk to users that are people that just downloaded a crypto wallet, many of the famous crypto wallets that we know, and use it to to do things with it and you ask them like do you understand what you're doing here do you understand like all the trade-offs they're not able to explain you that because how how would they be able to explain you that it's a very complicated construct all of it that's what and you're mean. talking so about trade-offs
0: refer- like if they're using usdt or something or is that what you're saying or what? I, I don't know what you're saying
1: Right, so you literally you you go to Buenos Aires, you talk to a first time crypto user, download a wallet, let's just for example say Coinbase, the Coinbase wallet or or even Rainbow like a more more native one. I don't I don't care, just like any wallet. And a use case there is of course that they use stable coins. That's that's a major use case in countries with high inflation. And you ask them do you understand kind of what what actually happens on the back end? Do you understand all the trade offs that happen here when you send uh, stablecoins, um, USDC or something to your friends, or you use it to pay, that all of that is transparent, that they don't. That That's what I
0: mean. Oh, okay. Well, so it's similar to the Silk Road thing I was saying, the transparency. All right. <laughs> right. So in a moment, we're going to, yeah, in a moment, we'll dive into other aspects of the WorldCoin project. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Join over 10,000 attendees for this year's biggest crypto event, at Token 2049 Singapore on September 13th to 14th. Sandeep from Polygon, Eric Wall, Chris Berniski, and over 200 others will hit the stage, joining the industry's most influential for an unforgettable experience ahead of the Formula One Grand Prix race weekend. Singapore will transform into a crypto hub for a week from September 11th to 17th, with over 300 side events that will make for unparalleled networking opportunities. Builders and investors at the bleeding edge of innovation will drive an agenda that covers the ever-evolving regulatory landscape, the convergence of crypto and AI, Web3 gaming, NFTs, and the metaverse. DeFi, scalability, interoperability, and many more. Visit token2049.com for 65% off regular ticket prices with the code unchained, link in the description. Join over 80 million people using Crypto.com, one of the easiest places to buy, trade, and spend over 250 cryptocurrencies. With the Crypto.com Visa card, you can spend your crypto anywhere and get rewarded at every step. Up to 5% cashback instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix and Spotify subscriptions, and zero annual fees. New users enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in their first seven days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code Laura. Link in the description. Arbitrum stands at the forefront of innovation as the premier suite of Layer 2 scaling solutions, bringing you lightning-fast transactions at a fraction of the cost, all with security rooted on Ethereum. From DeFi to gaming, Arbitrum 1 plus Nova is home to over 500 projects. And with the recent launch of Orbit, Arbitrum welcomes you to build your very own tailor-made Layer 3, or as the Arbitrum ecosystem calls it, an Orbit chain, directly on the Arbitrum tech stack. Designed with you in mind, Arbitrum empowers you to explore and build without compromise. Propel your project and community forward by visiting arbitrum.io today. Back to my conversation with Alex. Um, One other, you know, point that I wanted to bring up from that MIT Technology Review article, um, you know, it really is about that, you know, aspect that in those countries, people are kind of, they can be in a really difficult economic situation and really, um, you know, financial incentive is something that is very strong for them because they don't have a lot of ways to make money or at least certain parts of those populations. And, you know, it looks like um, this notion that they could get quote unquote free money was a big draw. And um, there were even incidents where like a workshop at a high school in Indonesia was billed as teaching students about cryptocurrency. But, uh, some, you know, and I guess a reporter who attended saw that it mostly was focused on onboarding them into the WorldCoin app, getting their biometrics scanned. It said even one of the participants was 15 years old. So, you know, what? like you said that now you you would do things differently. So what are you doing to prevent situations like these?
1: Look, this is a uh, over one year old, article uh, as the company was in series A stage and I will not enjoy dwelling more in the past here. Like if that's what you want to do, uh, I will not enjoy doing that. That's for sure. Um, Well,
0: but, but you said that you've, you, you know, aren't doing those things now. So how are you not?
1: Well, I mean, there, there's many, so, so like, just to give you a very simple example, a year ago, or this was actually like, longer, like one 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 and a half years ago. Um, the, the project was very, very small, we were like 20 people. It was a series A stage project. And we just closed their Series A. Uh, there was essentially no one with experience on-the-ground on operations working in the project. Right. And so all of the decentralized um, workforce products that you use in your daily life, like Airbnb or Uber or even kind of the scooter project Slime, they are full of similar challenges, right? There's like a lot of things going wrong with Ubers. There's a lot of things going wrong with Airbnbs every day. And so essentially what, um, these companies do is they have like a very, very strong operational team that reacts on spot has like quality controls, has protocols to react to certain things and to kind of actually ensure the quality of things. And these are all the things that we also went through and we, we hired many people of these companies, these projects and they build these protocols within the project. That does not mean these things will not happen. These things will happen for sure. As it scales to a billion people, there's like no way around that. It's just uh, that the confidence will increase. Like does it make sense?
0: Basically, as it becomes more adopted and people become more comfortable with it and you codify your own processes, is that what you mean?
1: I'm, I'm just saying, like we as a project, we just implemented many, many processes to to ensure that these things do not happen. I'm saying, as we scale up, things like that will happen. It's almost unavoidable for anything that gets to a billion people scale. The same way as like things happened with Airbnb, that should not happen, but they still happen. Just like the the scale of things and the scale of the operation. And so that's that's the same here, really.
0: So. At the same time, European regulators are scrutinizing WorldCoin. Regulators in France and Germany have announced that they're investigating. And I wondered did WorldCoin look into how your project could comply with GDPR rules? And if so, do you believe that it does so?
1: Well, I very strongly believe it does so. Uh, We are working with the German regulator in Bavaria for quite a long time now. This is like a long back and forth, as you can imagine. But given we actually started the company, in, in Erlag in Germany, we are regulated by the Bavarian GDPR, which is like one of the strictest agencies, I think, in the world to do that. So we will continue to work with them and answer all open questions. Again, like the privacy guarantees here are like very, very extreme. So.
0: Wait, are you. Do you mean WorldCoin or do you mean GDPR? The extreme, which is extreme?
1: Actually, both things are extreme. Like I think that the the Bavarian Data Protection mm-hmm. o- Authority is one of the strictest ones in the world, at least that's what people say. And that's at least what what kind of people that work in that space or in the industry say. Uh, And we are regulated by them and we work with them. And I'm saying the privacy guarantees by RollCoin are like much more than all the things you actually use. Like when you use Google Login, you don't have those privacy guarantees, right? So I think I do understand the initial reaction, given it's biometrics and it's Iris and all those things like sound very... Uh, very strong and I understand the initial gut reaction I actually had the same when I started working the project but it is just fundamentally privacy preserving it's open source so it's like you can check those things for yourself uh, and you cannot do that for all the other things that you use
0: okay and while we're just talking about different regulators Kenya also suspended WorldCoin in its country because as Reuters reported, "quote the government was concerned with Worldcoin's activities and agencies will probe how it intends to use the data it gathers." What's your response to Kenya's suspension of Worldcoin?
1: Well, there's a lot of things happening in Kenya. Actually, like the the demand surge in Kenya was very very extreme last week. Um, so we had like long long lines uh, in front of orbs, and I think it even it even led to the fact that like traffic could not run probably in in some spaces. So like it was very, very extreme. Uh, the same as in Japan in Tokyo, for example, we had similar situations or in Hong Kong or in Singapore. So we just like all over last week, we had this like huge, huge spike in app downloads and people verifying. So there's like a lot of attention right now on the project, of course, as you know, that's why we have this conversation and the same is true in Kenya. So in Kenya, there's multiple, there's like a whole, I actually have a briefing about this after this interview. Um, but there's, different agencies pursuing different things we actually will hold uh we will hold operation until that is resolved and work with them but there's a lot of users in kenya that would really want us to resume so let's see i cannot be more specific at this point
0: when you talk about those long lines um due to the launch of the coin i I do think it goes back to that free money issue earlier right it's like people want to do this to get free money
1: why do you think this works in tokyo why do you think this works in like in the richest area in Tokyo? Like, how do, how does that fit? Like together I said, because
0: people are incentivized by free money, right?
1: Right, but like, there's airdrops all over crypto. Like, why is that fundamentally a bad thing? It's like it's a very loaded I think like, the way if, you ask it, it's like a very loaded question, and I want to understand why that it is.
0: I I think because of the link to biometric data. Like, I guess you know something that I wondered. What but is, you do
1: understand there is no link to biometric data, like that's another thing we cover in this, in this podcast.
0: Well, there, the the biometric data is being used to generate the hash, so it is right. the basis for something. It's not like the raw data, but I guess this leads to another question I had, which is, like, why is there a world coin token? I don't understand why the the hash can't be used as an NFT or a soul bound token or something like that. Like, I don't understand why, why, why do you have the WorldCoin token?
1: Um, for, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, many of them that I think you, you cover in many other crypto projects. Like it's a major step that is actually required for decentralization. It will be important for governance also in WorldCoin, certainly around incentive alignment. So the, um, it incentivizes signups. That's what is happening. And that's entirely as it was designed to happen. And then also, this was one of the initial motivations. Like Actually, when we started working on the project, or when Sam pitched me the project initially, the idea was, okay, how can we create a network of over a billion people uh, that actually use crypto in their daily life? And one of the key forces of that is, of course, you have to have a token. And so I'm very, very excited about Coin, the RollCoin token becoming the widest distributed token. Then down the road, which I think is also something you have covered many, many times before, is as a project like this becomes increasingly useful and the utility increases over time, you need a way to actually make the network itself self-sustaining. So there is not a normal path to revenue here. There's no like There's no company that sells anything to a customer uh in, in that sense, right? It's like I run a company, it's called Tools for Humanity, and we are one of the contributors, but Rollcoin itself has to be a protocol itself that stands on its own. The same way as Ethereum stands on its own, because whenever people use Ethereum, they have to pay fees for each transaction. Right. And so that's how the whole thing stands on its own. And the same will be true for Rollcoin as well. As people use World ID and as people will use uh World App, at some point the governance can decide to engage fees in that and that will sustain the protocol. It, okay, it's, it's it's the it's the normal answer.
0: So it'll be to decentralize, allow for governance, and have the community control the protocol. Correct. So if that's the case, then I think people also have been wondering about the the distribution of the token supply, because you know currently insiders will be getting twenty five percent of the supply, and you know there's there is a short lockup, but the way you know this is designed, basically, it does look like founders and investors could exit pretty early with not too much risk. And I wondered what your response is to those kinds of criticisms
1: so so first of all, actually, let's be clear about what is in place because I think what is in place is like it's much stronger than pretty much every other crypto project that you know uh, in that sense that twenty five percent to investors and kind of the team. Is actually a very, very low number given we had to produce hardware devices and all of those things. Like most of the other protocols that you you covered here have much, much higher pre-allocations. So it was actually very, very hard to even get to that place because mm-hmm. right now Rolfgun is kind of the fancy thing and everyone talks about that. But three years ago, it was not at all obvious. And raising money for that was like really, really hard. And even getting to the 25%. I think almost two times really risked the project, so it's like it's it was not an easy thing to do. That's the first thing. Then second, what is in place is like it's a one year lockup and then a two year linear unlock schedule. So like for one year, no investor can sell any tokens, and then for two years linearly they unlock. And that is also uh, more strict than most projects do. And then to your judgment about like I mean all of your questions are pretty loaded, so. Uh, I will now load them too. Is to your judgment about risk and and whatever? It's like we work on this project now for four years. Uh, investors invested in this project when they knew we have to build a hardware device for more than fifty million dollars uh, with a team of twenty people, and we need to just root it globally. So it really was a high risk uh, project to invest in for. Investors right, but I think your
0: very, your venture capital funding covered that, right?
1: Right, but I'm saying like they took a lot of risk. Like venture capitalists took a lot of risk to fund that project, much more so than as usual here. That's what I'm saying.
0: Their payoff will be if the if the token succeeds,
1: and the token only succeeds if the protocol succeeds. So like if the whole thing actually works, which is a very like it's a it's a big bet.
0: All right. And I'm sure you've heard this other criticism, which is around the fact that the token was launched as a low float coin, which um, derogatorily is often called a Sam coin after Sam Bickman Fried, because oftentimes tokens he would back would uh, only release a tiny percentage into circulation at launch, which led to a lot of speculation. It also would create this sort of inflated, fully diluted value market cap. And that's kind of like a, pump-and-dump-ish design. And I understand there's this one-year lockup, et cetera. But, but why was this the method chosen, the you know initial low float?
1: It's, it's actually very, very simple. It's like you launch a token and you want to give ownership in, into that to billions of people, ideally everyone. That's the whole goal of the project. So there's 1 million signups, or there was 1.5 million signups or so at launch. So how does it make sense that there should be like more than 5% or something circulating at launch. Like it it just is not what this project is about. And it clearly is not a pump and dump because there's nothing for us to dump. Uh, There's nothing for us to pump. Like we don't have any incentive to do that. So yeah, I think it's just, that's the mission of the project. I understand the initial reaction to that. And we actually expected a reaction beforehand, but it really is the best way to launch this project. I think there's this other big, big thing, of course, that, uh, the circulating supply is increasing very, very quickly right now, and it will so over the next year because each user that signs up gets a, a decent amount of Rollcoin, right? So it is a reasonable concern for a couple of weeks, let's say. But I think the next time you know I will talk, it's not going to be a concern anymore.
0: And then I saw Sam Bankman Fried and Three Arrows Capital were investors in Worldcoin. So are they? Do they now own some of that twenty five percent, or what happened to their <laughs> shares?
1: Well, I mean. Yes, they do. Uh, as SPF was like a super small check in the Series A. I think 3AC was actually more, more decent in Series A and Series B. Uh, and so the litigators now own these tokens. And as I'm sure you're aware, that's the case for pretty much every large crypto project at that point. Because either SPF or 3AC invested in pretty much all of them. So this was just not foreseeable back then.
0: And wait, you said the litigators, but did you mean liquidators?
1: A liquidator, sorry, not litigators. Right, okay.
0: so
1: huge, but important difference.
0: So earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that when Sam Altman first approached you about working on this project, that you initially also had kind of an adverse reaction. So I wanted to hear your evolution. How did you go from being a skeptic to not only being a believer, but now the leader of the project?
1: Before I joined, I was doing, I was doing physics. So I was I was doing deep learning AI in physics, in Caltech in Los Angeles, and I just randomly got this email about Worldcoin initially from Max, which was the other co-founder. So Sam and Max already started working the project like six months prior, and in that email there was just, hey, we're looking for software engineers, and here's a quick description of the project and the project was like it was like a two pager, very, very high level description of um what Rollcoin is trying to do. So my initial start was actually as an interview for a software engineer. This was how I initially got in contact with Rollcoin. And then I had this interview with Sam, I had many interviews with Max and kind of everyone surrounding that and then decided to join, however, convinced them that I should be co-founder given kind of, I became friends with both of them quite, quite quickly. The founding team joined, which was a lot of my, my friends, um, and very incredibly important. And so then we started working on that. And what I meant here is two things is like, one, the idea just sounded crazy because obviously it is, it's like, it's very, very novel. It's, it's very, very ambitious. And it really is, uh, there, there's not much in between outcomes is like, it, it clearly is a moonshot and that's something that you rarely encounter. And all the other options I had were like working on quantum computing, let's say with, uh, with Google or stay in research or uh, I don't know, work, work in AI in, in some, some companies. So like all the other choices I had were like very kind of settled jobs that would probably pay me really well after some time. And then making the decision to join Volcoin felt like really crazy back then. But um, then the second thing is, okay, Like for the first year or the first eight, nine months, all we did is really we researched how to implement proof of personhood. And we talked to many, many people in the space. We talked to many researchers. We built many prototypes. And essentially, we went through this whole cycle of implementing network of trust uh, kind of um, implementations, which is sounds very promising. It sounds very, very cool, essentially, that there's 20 people and we all know each other. And so we can verify each other that we are actually real human beings with some, and then you have like some clever math behind it to weight that with some confidence. So we implemented all these kind of um, all of, of these major implementations. We went with face, we went with fingerprint. uh, We tried to build it on top of KYC. So government identities, and these were the the three big things. So network, uh, web of trust uh, biometrics and build it on top of KYC. And KYC was a terrible idea for a lot of reasons because it's, I think it's the antidote to what crypto actually is trying to do, but then also it's not at all inclusive, so you really could not do that. Web of trust, things can become promising once you have a large number of verified users with something like world ID that you can build it on top of, but it's really, really impossible to bootstrap. And so we threw that away too. And then within biometrics, we came to this like hard insight that we cannot use phones, and we cannot use fingerprints or face uh, because of kind of the uniqueness requirement is just not fulfilled if you even go to a billion users. And so we had to go with iris recognition, which is the only thing that actually works on that scale, and it's it's proven that it works, um, and you can implement it privacy preserving with zero c- knowledge proofs. And of course, my first reaction was like. Holy shit! This is gonna sound like very, very scary, uh, but then also, <laughs> it's the it's the only way to implement a really, really important problem. Uh, so we we went ahead and took the hit, and I think as we saw in this podcast, it's it still hits. It's like it obviously it sounds it sounds crazy and it sounds uh, like a privacy violation initially. So you really need to understand the technology uh, to understand why it's not concerning. And I had that same reaction. That's, that's, that's what I meant.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, I try to go through all the major criticisms I've seen that people have had. Um, but now you have this opportunity here getting hit from all sides. If you just want to leave the listener with one last message about Worldcoin, um, or, you know, what you're working on or what it will be you know, rolling out, what is it? What would you want to say?
1: criticism will come and go it is obviously very very important and we take it we take it really really serious of course uh, I think the important note to the listener is like please actually read the materials or try to understand it at least before you come to a conclusion because I understand that their first reaction might be uh oh this is like crazy or this is like super ambitious or it's it sounds like a privacy nightmare all of those things like before you come to those conclusions like actually try to understand what is happening here. That's the first thing. And the other thing is I hope, and I do believe that it will become increasingly evident that WorldCoin will become a very, very powerful technology that we will need in a time in which AI is becoming increasingly powerful, which is gonna happen in the next couple of years, almost definitely at this point. And if you only come from the crypto background, the growth that we see right now in terms of we're we over a million monthly active users now, and we did not even try because we were pre-launch. But now we will try. It's like this will be probably the major onboarding to crypto that is going to happen, and it is important to all of us that this goes in the right way. And so please engage with us. We try to be incredibly open about everything. It's like, for example, about the token launch. We even the the market maker agreements were public. And so with all the criticism, just stick with the positive and let's implement this because I think it's going to be very, very important.
0: All right. Well, where can people learn more about you and WorldCoin?
1: Follow us on Twitter. Uh, Follow me, Sam, WorldCoin on Twitter. And otherwise, just check out the white paper, which is arguably very long. It's like 150 pages. So we're sorry for that complexity, but it's just a complex project.
0: All right. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on Unchained.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Laura.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Alex and WorldCoin, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Kevin Fuchs, Matt Pilchard, Zach Seward, Juan Aranovich, Sam Sriram, Ginny Hogan, Leandro Camino, Shashank, and Margaret Curia. Thanks for listening.